ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, Episode 86B. More thoughts. On the Byzantine Republic. I hope the interview with uh, Anthony Cordellis is still fresh in your mind. Today I'm going to touch on the things I found most interesting about it and deal with one or two listener questions which I solicited on Facebook at the time. What stood out to me first from our History of Rome, History of Byzantium perspective was the idea that Augustus did not abolish the Republic. He simply changed the nature of its form of government. I don't know how that idea struck you, but I felt that was something of an eye-opener. It wasn't that it was an entirely new thought, but it just clicked a lot of things into place. At the time, people continued to live out their lives just as they had the day before. They still sought out wealthy patrons to help further their prosperity. Their avenues toward justice and fair treatment remained as narrow as they were before, regardless of whether the Senate had the final say on state policy or if the emperor did. Augustus announced to Rome, I have restored the res publica, which we tend to view as a sort of sham statement, a cynical rebranding to mollify the ego of the Senate. But maybe what Augustus meant was that I have restored the political body to a state of harmony the agglomeration of power in his hands, did change the form of government, but perhaps it didn't really change Rome from a republic to an empire in the way we traditionally think. I recently watched the BBC television series I, Claudius for the first time, and if you want to see Patrick Stewart with hair, then it's definitely an eye-opener in its own way. But I was very interested to see that in Robert Graves's reconstruction of the lives of the Julio-Claudians, an entirely modern understanding of republic versus empire prevailed. So most of the good characters, including the Emperor Claudius himself, want a return of the republic because autocracy is viewed as a generally bad thing. Even when Augustus is ruling, members of his own family yearn for a return to republican ways. I'm pretty sure I would have reacted against this presentation of events before reading Professor Caldellis's book, but certainly watching it when I did, it was very clear that our modern conception of a republic as being inherently more democratic or representative was influencing our interpretation of the past. I think Professor Caldellis's argument about what the res publica 
really means is convincing. And he's not arguing for republicanism surviving into Byzantine times, but the survival of a public sense that the government should be responsive to our needs. Following this argument through our narrative, I suppose that commonly accepted assumption of how government should function didn't alter despite the crisis of the third century, where, as Professor Caldellis points out, emperors were made and unmade by the armies out in the field. Interestingly, of course, the empire did split into three during that time as local emperors were seen as more responsive to the needs of their community. But it seems like it was the unique geography of Constantinople that allowed this popular participation to return to government. Now, in the interview, we discussed the physical proximity of the Hippodrome to the palace as one form of that. And then you heard me suggest that being surrounded on three sides by water was another aspect of it. For those who heard the John Chrysostom episodes, you got to hear the real sense of blind panic felt by the Goths once the gates were barred. Where else could they go? In any other city, there would have been another gate to run to, but not Constantinople. I also wonder if the strategic location of the capital was important as well. The ability of those in Constantinople to outmaneuver their military commanders was obviously key to establish civilian government. During the crisis of the 3rd century, we saw the emperors in the centre lose control of their armies, in part because they were spread out across the whole continent. Whereas by the time of Justinian, things had compacted. You had two armies in the Balkans, and one or two out on the Eastern Front, and then you kept the two precental armies loyal at home. In this new scenario, the emperor could more easily run the whole system from the palace. The eastern and western armies were separated by the Bosphorus, and as long as they were well taken care of, the precentals would act as another buffer. This allowed Fortress Constantinople the chance to become the central arbiter in who would run the whole show. And thus, the general population got an increased role in government. That is just me adding my own thoughts on how this idea fits into our story. Don't take that to be Professor Caldellis's argument. Another thing that Professor Caldellis does in the book is to give excellent examples of how that unspoken political culture operated. Now, I thought that was a fascinating idea. What assumptions do we have about what is and isn't acceptable in political life? In the interview, we heard the interesting example of our perception of whether rich or poor people deserve their fate in some way. In Roman times, that view was presumably even more deeply embedded. Certainly, you can imagine a Procopius or a Theophanes not even bothering to comment on such a thought, to suggest that they were just lucky to be born into upper-class families, whereas Publius the mule driver never had the opportunities that they did, would probably have seemed absurd, in the same way that once you were emperor, well, God must have wanted you to rise to that position. It got me thinking about unwritten rules of politics in contemporary Britain. In September 2015, an allegation surfaced that the Prime Minister, David Cameron, while at university, placed a part of his anatomy in the mouth of a dead pig as part of an initiation. 
Now, that might be quite untrue, but as unsavory as the thought of it is, it hasn't had any discernible effect on his political standing. But what if the allegation was something more serious? What if it were that Cameron had repeatedly used a certain racial slur during his youth, or a homophobic slur? I suspect that if substantiated in even a vague way, that could have done tremendous damage, and if proven, would surely force him to resign. Now, there's nothing in the laws which govern Britain which suggests that using a racial slur 20 years before you entered office would debar you from serving in it anymore, but I suspect that's what could happen. It may be a frivolous example, but I thought it was worth giving because there are definitely occasions when Byzantine emperors have been overthrown, and we aren't clear why the public in Constantinople had turned against them. As Professor Caldellis mentioned in passing, the aristocratic authors who wrote the histories may not have been aware of what the people on the street were genuinely upset about, or they may have chosen to admit it because it didn't fit the narrative which they were constructing. Certainly, I think this book is very helpful in getting us to understand the context of all those rebellions and uprisings and attempted coups. If revolt against the emperor was understood to be part of the unwritten constitution of Roman government, then it does explain the relative leniency shown on many occasions. After all, to rebel against God's vice-regent should make you an impious oath-breaker and cast your whole family and their families under suspicion. But we don't see blood feuds develop in Byzantium. As with Absimar the Admiral's son growing up to be an important bishop and happily serving future emperors. More often than not, a rebel's family were forced into a convent or monastery where they could live perfectly comfortably but just no longer be involved in community life. We saw this repeatedly at the end of the century with the sons of Constantine V. Irene's Opponents kept trying to get one of the sons to be acclaimed by the people and presumably hoped that they would be handsomely rewarded if the plot was successful. In late 797, the brothers were gathered in the Hagia Sophia and the hope was clearly that the crowds would carry them forward to the palace. But they didn't have enough public support to make it happen. As Irene's administration began to unravel a few years later, she began handing out massive financial concessions to the people of the capital, clearly hoping that they would protect her from the various coups which were brewing. Her eventual deposition certainly has the feeling of a modern political coalition arrangement. Nicephorus, the general logothete who replaced her, was just the one smart enough to gather the right support and act at the right moment. The transfer of power took place with minimal violence, when Irene refused to marry or adopt, she forfeited her role within the system. Her replacement by a new man was just a matter of time. When I asked listeners on Facebook for questions about the Byzantine Republic, most answered with no knowledge of the book, so understandably the queries that came in were focused on our modern concept of a republic. And yet I think we can helpfully touch on a couple of them. One listener asked if the people had rights and if the emperor was subject to the law. 
We haven't quite reached Leo VI in our narrative yet, but in the book, we're shown how when Leo came to gather his own law codes, he reacted to the behaviour of his subjects. Rather than his will being law, he had to accept the way people were behaving as lawful, rather than try to force them to change. There was a sense of negotiation between ruler and ruled when it came to the law. One listener posted the excellent question of why no formal succession process was ever developed. Based on my reading of the book, the answer would be that the office of emperor was just that, an office, a public office. It wasn't to be bequeathed or handed on without consultation with the people. As Professor Caldellis acknowledged, of course, this was manipulated and Leo III didn't ask the people to vote on whether Constantine V should be crowned, but he did have to stage manage his son's elevation to gain public acceptance. And Constantine V quickly discovered how much oaths of loyalty meant once Artavastos kicked him out of power. Another listener asked how the Byzantines viewed their own political system, which of course is the subject of a large chunk of the book. But one incident gives us interesting insight. It comes from the report of a Byzantine ambassador named Priscus, who goes on a mission to meet Attila the Hun. In the writing which survives, Priscus compares Roman politics to those of the Hun confederation. Now, Priscus takes this opportunity to complain about all the things he doesn't like about his own country. He says that the Roman people are not allowed to bear arms for their own defence, which he disagrees with. He complains that military leaders aren't competent, that taxes are too high, there's too much corruption, and that the law bends depending on how rich the defendant is. But he still thinks that a system with laws and checks and balances and offices that can be held and lost is better than being subject to the whims of Attila's will. So here's an example of someone intelligent and articulate who sees how things really operate, but will defend his own system against all others because he perceives it to have more balance and justice than theirs. You'll have to read the book to find more examples of how the Byzantines saw their own state. Finally, I think this book only adds another layer to our understanding of why military victory was so important. Its ability to confer legitimacy is priceless. For an emperor to return to his capital having been defeated, as, say, Justinian II did, was potentially the beginning of the end, and certainly the start of trouble. I also reflect on the career of Constans II, the emperor who left the capital for Sicily. He was doomed the moment he set foot on his ship. Any perceived problems back in the capital would find expression in the simple answer, well, what do you expect, with the emperor having abandoned us? No wonder a conspiracy formed to overthrow him. That's it for now, and this is the last piece of recording I have in the can. So the next time you hear from me, I will be back in the UK and will be finishing off this end-of-the-century tour by answering more of your questions and taking a look at the Roman military. For now, please be patient with my slow replies to your messages, and thank you for listening.
ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hey guys, welcome to Giggly Squad, a place where we make fun of everything, but most importantly, ourselves. I'm Paige DeSorbo. I'm Hannah Burner. Welcome to the squad. Giggly Squad started on Summer House when we were giggling during an inappropriate time. But of course, we can't be managed. So we decided to start this podcast to continue giggling. We will make fun of pop culture news. We're watching. Fashion trends. Pep talks where we give advice. Mental health moments. And games and guests. Listen to Giggly Squad on Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>